Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the UXR podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Greg Bernstein. Uh, Greg has a pretty illustrious research career spanning a bunch of different companies, including Vox and MailChimp and most recently Signal. And today we're going to talk a bit about his career, but more importantly, about Greg's new book called Research Practice. It contains a bunch of awesome stories and pieces of advice covering all aspects of the research practice with a bunch of commentary from Greg himself. And I just got my copy and I'm already digging into it and I think it's going to be a great book. So uh, we recorded this before uh, his book officially was published and came out, uh, but now you can grab it on Amazon and I highly recommend you do. Uh, so thanks for, for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the UXR podcast. Today, I'm joined by um, probably one of the, the better known researchers out there who's worked at a bunch of different places, uh, super knowledgeable guy, uh, Greg Bernstein. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Alec. Thanks for having me on. It's a, a real honor and pleasure. So we're, you're working on a book, and we're going to talk about your book in a second, but before we do... Um, you've worked at some pretty interesting companies over the years uh, and had some pretty interesting roles. And I'm pretty sure those companies also had very different ways of doing research. <laughs> yes. So I would love if we could start off with a bit of a Cliff's Notes version of, you know, where you've been, what you've done over the past few years. Okay. Let's take this back to uh, even before I started as a researcher, I was a designer, a uh, print designer for a number of years. I did a lot of albums and uh CDs, uh, T-shirts, posters for bands and record labels. And I got burned out on that and became a design professor instead because I still loved design. I just didn't want to actually be the one doing the design work. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that's what I would do forever. So I ended up getting my master's degree in design so that I could be a tenure-track professor. Like, I, I wanted to be an academic. Uh, but a funny thing happened in grad school where I stumbled into this entire profession called user experience. Uh, which was exactly what I liked about design, which was like thinking about what we're doing, understanding who we're designing for. And so instead of ending up as a design professor, uh, I ended up joining MailChimp as a design researcher. Uh, and the person who hired me said, you know, all the things that you were doing in grad school where you were trying to understand who we're designing for and, and what problems we're solving, that's what you can do every day here at MailChimp. So I was there Compelling for four offer. years. It was, a, it was a very compelling offer. And the other thing he said, this is Aaron Walter, who wrote the book Designing for Emotion. He was my first manager at MailChimp. He also said, you know, you could teach anytime. Like universities aren't going anywhere, but this offer is here and now. Uh, and software is really fun. So this is what I would recommend you do. So I did that for a number of years and built up a design practice. I left MailChimp to join Vox Media, where they have a, a really wonderful product team. Uh, I was the first uh, user experience researcher there. Uh, I worked to understand how to make uh, how to make software for writers and editors better. So the software that people use to publish your stories to the web and to newsletters, uh, to publish their videos to YouTube, that's what I worked on for a while. Uh, built up a practice there. And now I'm at Signal Messenger, where, again, I'm the first researcher. Uh, which is entirely different than the work I was doing at, at MailChimp and Vox. Uh, Signal is a bit different in that, one, it's messaging. Two, we have no idea who's using the product, and that's by design. So it's, uh, 
it's a very different set of problems and a, a, a larger challenge than anything I've done before. That is, that does not sound like a good straight out of school job for a researcher. That, that, that sounds like a job you probably want to have a few years under your belt before starting to tackle. I don't know. I have a few years under my belt and I still am doing the whole, like, I don't know what I'm doing uh, emoji <laughs> a lot. Like, I, I have no idea what's happening. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's a quite a bit of humility in that rather than uh, too much truth. But um, <laughs> w- let's, let's talk a bit about here real quick. Seeing how research has evolved, mm-hmm. you know, from your first time, first days at MailChimp, right? You know, it's, you know, it, I think that the, pra- the practice has evolved quite a bit since, since then coming to today. Um, were, as you went through those different jobs and as you worked through those, those, uh, through those years, were there a few things that you, looking back, see as like these big red flag trends that really stand out that you could see the beginnings of in those early years that have really come to manifest now? When I started at MailChimp, and this was in 2012 that I started, January 2012, so eight years ago, there were not a lot of UX researchers um, it was, UX research was like a nice to have for companies. It wasn't a a necessity. It was like a luxury. You know, you had engineers, you had designers, but you might not have researchers and that was fine. And so something that I've seen change over the years is like every organization needs research now. They demand it, uh, which means there's a lot more jobs. There's a lot more demand for researchers. So that's great. Like people are seeing the value in the work we're doing. The other big thing I've noticed is we used to have to hack together a lot of tools to do our work. We had to develop the methodologies that get us the feedback or the responses or the information uh, we need to to make solid decisions. Now there's tons of tools for doing our work from the tools to uh, conduct studies, tools to synthesize what you're hearing, uh, tools for storing and disseminating data. Um, I mean, a good example of this is I worked with uh, a researcher at MailChimp named Jen Downs, and she came up with this method called the laptop hugging method, which was where you would hug your laptop. So it would, you'd put your laptop in your lap facing away from you. You'd put your arms around it, and you'd position your mobile phone in front of the camera so that you could do mobile usability testing. So you had to use your laptop to look at the, uh, your iPhone and record using Skype. Like it was, She came up with this hacky method that was brilliant, but there was no other way to do that type of research in 2012. And now there's so many options to do that type of work. So we now have tools, we now have people, we now have recognition that this is valuable. I think those are the, probably the three biggest takeaways from what I've seen over the last eight years. And, and it's not to say that research wasn't done before that. It's just, it was called you know HCI, it was called something else. Now you see people who are coming into this profession knowing exactly what UX research or user research is Uh, and coming in with the skills to do it. And now they have the support in terms of of tooling to do that job. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember a conversation I had not too, too long ago with a designer who um, they were talking about their favorite design tools. And then they asked me what my favorite research tools were. And I said, (laughs) Google Docs and Google Sheets. (laughs) Well, that's, that's what's funny. Like, after all these years, I still end up, I still end up using Google Docs. I still end up using... uh, I prefer Excel to Google Sheets. Uh, and then any notes app, like that's all I need and I'm fine. Like the notes app is for the quick takeaways. Google Docs is for something a little more polished. And then Excel is for the, the data crunching. 
Uh, and then, you know, a nice presentation, either in Keynote or Google Slides. And, and you're, you know, I'm, I'm happy if I have those at my disposal. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that we've evolved a little bit uh, since having that being our, our only options. There's some really good stuff out there now that, um, that, that having done the hacky thing and now like to be able to go from like what you described and be like, I'm just going to send them a link on Lookback. That is, <laughs> that is just like, have, you know, you just really appreciate the value of like good technology when you started off with like none. Um, yeah. The, the other thing though, is now that there are so many tools at our disposal, um, I feel like some organizations are also overlooking what they already have in place. So people will ask me like, like they do to you, you know, what, what are the research tools you use? And my advice is always like, how do people communicate in your organization now? If all you're using is Slack and Google Docs, like keep your research there because that's where people will find it and yeah. discover it and, and make use of it. Otherwise, don't put it in some third place that people are never going to go to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Um, so you're working on a book or no, you, you finished your book. I have finished a book. It comes out, uh, I don't know when this will air, but it comes out on January 19th of 2021. So, you know, uh, like, like many other researchers, I've, uh, I've pre-ordered, or at least uh, assuming, I think I pre-ordered. I, don't, I can't remember if I got a Kindle version. <laughs> Whatever, whichever one is the one that was available on Amazon. Um, it's got a lot of information in there. Um, so can you start off by telling us sort of what inspired you to write the book and what you're hoping readers are going to get out of it? Yeah, uh, and thank you for asking. Uh, I, I put this book together, it's called Research Practice. And it originally started as things I've learned from spinning up research practices uh, for a couple of large organizations or medium-sized organizations. And as I was putting it together, I realized, I came to this uh, actually depressing realization that there is a lot I don't know. Uh, and I started realizing that I, I should not be writing a book about research practice because the way I'm writing this or framing it, it's only going to be valuable to somebody who's following exactly in my footsteps. So um, really the book is what I wish was around when I got into this field. It's everything you need to know about um, who gets into this field, uh, what it actually looks like to do the day-to-day -day research, the kind of people or teams you'll work with, um, how you might scale a practice and hire additional researchers, um, the challenges of being a user researcher and where you might go next in your career after you've started off in an organization. So I ended up opening the book to other professionals and it started off with me interviewing other researchers. And then uh, a friend suggested like, why don't you just ask people to write their own perspectives uh, instead of, you know, you trying to take what they're saying and then spin it into your own book, like just make it a collaborative effort, which is kind of perfect because as researchers, that's what we do. We gather perspectives, we frame them, uh, and then we share them. So it also reflects my beliefs that there's no one way to do research. Like the work I did at MailChimp was not right for how we did it at Box, which is absolutely not right for how we do it at Signal. So this book is not prescriptive. I have opinions that I share in the book about what's worked for me and what I believe, but I'm also clear when I say things like, this is my experience, but here are other perspectives from other people um, that are gonna tell you something different. And it's up to you to kind of take all of this, synthesize it yourself and figure out what's gonna work for you. Um, and I got some feedback from people who said, like, I really just want somebody to tell me exactly what to do, but that's not 
my, that's not really how I work. Like I, I am somebody who is pretty diplomatic in my approach to research. Uh, I find a way to share my ideas and, and work with your ideas. And that's kind of how the approach I took to this book. So anyone who buys this book is going to get uh, perspectives from 40 essay contributors, uh, 85 survey participants, uh, plus myself, and they're going to just understand a diversity of perspectives on what it means to be a user researcher. Well, I, I think that's, um, you know, great research is super contextual, right? Uh, and of course, you know, if you're asking, if you want a prescribed version of like, this is how to do it, um, unless you're being really superficial, uh, it's going to be really hard to make super clear, actionable, like here's how you do it without knowing a tremendous amount about the unique context of the reader or listener. Um, exactly. and, and so I think that, that, that approach makes a ton of sense. I think this has been one of the big, so first off, there's not a lot of research books out there, but nope. of the ones that, <laughs> that are, that try and, um, go a little bit deeper and make some of those stronger recommendations. One of the challenges is that again, what has, first of all, what's worked in the past might not work in the future. Right. And so mm -hmm. there's this shelf life challenge that any, any book would have that ha takes that approach. But the second thing is that, you know, as you mentioned, take something as simple as like we just, just discussed sharing research, right? Mm -hmm. Fundamental to doing the job. If you don't share research, you create zero value, you're fired, right? Well, <laughs> sharing research is not something that you have a single template for that will work everywhere. Right. It depends on, you know, what kind of communication tools and culture and all that kind of stuff that each individual company has and a bit about yourself, a bit about your team, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think that's a really, it's a really unique approach, really interesting approach. And I think that that gives people more to work with to figure out how to make sense of their situation, which I think is great. When you think about this, the type of stuff that you covered, was there any one area that really stood out that's kind of surprised you hearing all the pieces that came in from, from folks in the field? Yeah, there, there were a few surprises. And I think it seems obvious now. Uh, in hindsight, but it was a classic one of those, like, you don't know what you don't know scenarios where I had assumed just based on my experience as somebody who's, who's hired researchers and built a practice, I assumed that once an org starts a research practice, that's it, it's established. Um, and while that might be true to an extent, like, yeah, there's infrastructure in place, there's tooling in place, teams change, new products are launched that require, uh, new headcount. So even in a place as large as Google, you might be the 120th researcher hired, but you still might be the one who is actually spinning up a research practice. Uh, and you are working with people who have never worked with a researcher before. You are studying territory that has never been studied before, that organization. And so that kind of dispelled this or disabused me of this notion that like once research is established, that's it, it's a done deal. You can, you can be the 200th researcher and it's still like you're researcher number one, uh, except maybe that there's already survey tooling. There might, there might already be like a compensation system in place for participants. So that one was really interesting to me. And it also is a little embarrassing that I didn't realize that before I started talking to so many other researchers and, and heard that perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a really funny one. I mean, you think about, I think this is, this is kind of, um, it's, I feel like this is an active change that we're seeing right now of 
right now research efforts being ex in large teams being extremely distributed, right? There's mm -hmm. not really this like unifying theme um, around like, here's how we work, here's what we're focused on like globally. I mean, we all have mm -hmm. our own individual projects, but here's what we're focused on globally. The one exception that I've heard of, I'm sure there's others who, who do it differently, but the one that I've heard of that I found super compelling was, was from Slack where rather than having the researchers attached to like product or feature teams, mm -hmm. the research team kind of is its own thing. They identify the things they want to figure out each year to help the company support their goals. And then they resource their researchers accordingly. Now, for sure, that means they're collaborating with various people from other parts of the company. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean they're attached to a product manager. They might be attached to a product manager for a certain period of time so they can learn a certain thing and then they're back to working on their own or working with someone else, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, and that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of neat that, that, that kind of came out of it. I, um, I think you're going to have to do a follow-up book in, in five to 10 years where you revisit all of these topics to see what's changed again. <laughs> uh you know, don't laugh. I feel like this is a book that should be updated every few years because the field, like this is just a, a stopping point. You know, this field changes by the year. So uh, I think what, I'm not saying this book is already out of date, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely going to be inaccurate uh, in a number of years. And then it'll be time for, you know, volume two. That, that, is, that is a day that I will look forward to. And then you're going to need um, to start making graphs, tracking changes over time. But let's not no. get ahead of ourselves. Um, um, you know, I also want to say like another thing I learned just from speaking to other practitioners, and, and this is in a very different direction, is that our field, uh, our field of user research can be pretty lonely, especially if you are the person who has been hired to spin up research practice, if you're a team of one, because often there's one researcher to, you know, five designers and 10 engineers or uh, whatever the ratios are. But the researcher is usually one person, which means you're being asked to, to have authority to lead projects, but you also have no nobody to collaborate with. You might have a manager you can talk to, you might have colleagues you can you can collaborate with, but you don't have other researchers to say, hey, what would you do in this scenario? Am I doing this right? And so you can feel outnumbered, you can feel you know, isolated, it can lead to imposter syndrome. And that's one that I... I could relate to that one and it came up organically just in talking to other researchers and I'm glad it did because it's real. It's, it's, we're always going to be outnumbered. And I think that's, that's a challenge. I don't think that's going to be the case forever, but we're usually the last to be hired to a product team. Yeah. That, that's really, it, that's really funny too, because, you know, if you talk to people who are really early on in their research career or trying to get their first job, you know, they'll describe a lot of those same feelings yeah. Um, and I think there's probably an expectation that that goes away as soon as you land that gig. Um, but that's not the case. No, no, it's hard. I, I, I miss having, you know, I'm a team of one at Signal. Uh, I miss having other researchers to say, hey, how would you do this? And, you know, fortunately, I know enough people in this field that I can talk to people who are in other organizations or have worked in similar spaces. So I have a network I can rely on, but it's not the same as having that person who knows your work intimately because they work with you. Uh, and, you know, once I had teams at Vox and at MailChimp, it was, that was like heaven because I could talk every day with people who were seeing the same things I was seeing and who could say, hey, why don't we try this next time? Or, you know, I think, you know, here's some other ways we could interpret this data. And there's no better 
to me, that there's no better time than when you can really uh, think deeply in collaboration with other researchers and, and really attack, uh, well, I don't want to use this violent language, really consider a problem space. Yeah. When you think ahead to what you hope, what changes you get to document in your next edition of the book? <laughs> yeah. What are some of those things that really stick out in your mind of where you hope we're going to be? Um, and the, the sort of successes and victories we'll be writing about then. So it's actually something that you, uh, you contributed to the book. You filled out my survey a year ago. Uh, you, you didn't know I was going to bring this up for this podcast. I did not, but, um, <laughs> I did not even you, know that this contribution made it past the submit button, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, it, you you're in there a few times. But uh, you mentioned you know, that we need to realize, one, that research is a business function. Um, you know, we are working for companies who are, they have profit motives, they have business goals. Uh, and in support of those goals, we could do so much more than usability testing or design research. We should not be perhaps reporting to design leaders. We should not be reporting to product managers. Research should be an executive level function. Research leadership can, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you're uh, a movie buff, but in The Godfather, uh, Vito Corleone has his consigliere, Tom Hagen, uh, who advises him on all important decisions uh, and can say, like, here's some things you need to watch out for, here's some opportunities for us. Like, that's what a research leader can do. And I think that's where we, as practitioners or as a field, are headed. We are going to, I don't want to say have a seat at the table, but we are going to be in a more valuable position to influence the direction of organizations so that they make better decisions, uh, enter the right markets, not enter the wrong markets, um, and embrace the right opportunities. So that's where I think we're headed. You, you have a response. How much, <laughs> how much more persuasive would it be to have us in leadership positions if instead of a VP of research, we called ourselves a chief consigliere officer. <laughs> I think that's a winning brand. Um, it's, it's funny you mention that because, you know, one of the things I, I've been, I always am trying to look for analogies to, to better understand research. Um, and, you know, you know, looking at things like, um, you know, geopolitics, looking at things like um, the academic literature and, and, and academic institutions. And one of the things that stood out to me as a really interesting parallel, uh, if, if off-putting, is the role that like the CIA plays um, in, the, in, in the American government or whatever, uh, whatever the example is in other countries as well. Because, you know, the, the job is to provide intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. So that an administration can make intelligent decisions, understanding what's going on in the world and where the, how they're positioned to respond to it, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, that parallel, again, super off-putting. But it kind of, there's, there's kind of a, a thing there um, that yeah. does make some kind of sense. It's similar to the consigliere sort of concept as well. I bet there's some, some better ones that are slightly less violent than the godfather and... And the CIA, but <laughs> well, you know, when I was research manager at Mailchimp, I reported into our chief data scientist, and the idea was, you know, smush together the quant and the qual, and just have like a intelligence 
uh, organization within MailChimp that could help every part of the company. And we reported into the chief operating officer. And it was some of the best work I got to do at MailChimp because we were solving problems like, you know, we have a lot of competitors leave for enterprise level products. What would it be like if we came up with an answer to our enterprise competitors? You know, what features would that be? What pricing uh, would we set? Uh, what would the terms look like? Would it be month to month or yearly? Um, how would we communicate it? What language would we use in the marketing? And it was not just, there was some usability. There was some design research, but it was a bigger question of what's the thing that we could build that is still true to the brand, but prevents us from customers churning away. And it was wonderful because we were, we were reporting to leadership. We were making a difference. We lost a product uh, and research was there every step of the way. And I think that's that's where I think we're heading uh, as researchers. It's not we're not just there to support designers. And, and I, I love working with designers, but I think Matt Gallivan gave a talk at your first uh, UX conference in 2018, I guess. 2018, uh, where where he said like researchers reporting into design doesn't make sense. He said it much more eloquently than that, uh, and he he was right. It, there's so much more we could be doing. Uh, we should be elevating our, our role. And it, it takes us to argue for that. It's going to take us proving the case that we, we should be doing more than what we're doing. We can do more. And I think that's where we're heading is, is research leaders proving the case that we could do so much more than what we have been doing. Well, look, I, I think if we, if we steal a little bit of branding from the Godfather and, uh, and I think and, and start um, calling ourselves consigli- consigliaries for hire instead of uh, UX researchers, I, th- I think we have a real shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like central intelligence too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got to find a way to, to distinguish it from, you know, the, the older institution yes. because of all the coups and everything. Um, but right. uh, the, the theme works. The theme definitely works. Um, so, so remind me again, uh, when's your book coming out and where can people get it? So it comes out on January 19th, 2021. Uh, I, I embraced the dark side for this and went solely with Amazon because I have a full-time job and a family. So Amazon (laughs) makes it very easy to self-publish, which I should mention, it's a self-published book. Um, Abby Covert self-published her book, How to Make Sense of Any Mess on Information Architecture a few years ago. Brad Frost self-published Atomic Design. Jan Chipchase self-published his uh, field study handbook. And so I saw that there was a model there. I wanted to embrace it myself. So uh, I'm self-publishing through Amazon. Uh, You can get it for the Kindle. And then uh, you'll also be able to get it as a paperback. Uh, You can pre-order the Kindle now, but Amazon has a funny policy for self-published paperbacks where you can't order it until it's actually uploaded to their system. And I think that's a way for them to make sure that people who say they're going to write a paperback to actually come, you know, finish the job. (laughs) So you'll be able to buy the paperback on the 19th. You can pre-order the Kindle version today. Amazing. Well, if if the book is anything like the talk you gave uh, a couple of years ago at UXRConf, I can guarantee that it's going to be well worth uh, the the cost and also a fun read. Um, Greg, thanks so much for for joining us. Uh, this is a lot of fun, and looking forward to another episode in five to ten years where we can talk about edition number two. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Take care.
there. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Greg. Uh, if you haven't already, don't forget to go to uxrconference.com and check out our amazing conference program. We've got almost 30 different talks ready for you and it's, tickets only cost $99. And if you can't afford 99 bucks, just send an email to hello at uxrcollective.com with whatever price you would like to pay. We have a name your price ticket option and you can name any price. It could be $50, it could be $10, it could be $1. We don't care. We want you to use it. We want you to take advantage of it. We want to remove the financial barriers to joining this conference because we really want you to be there. So uh, don't forget to check out uxrconference.com and grab your ticket today. See you next time.